0: This message is from Icon, from community, Icon church. community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. by to be defined Atlanta. by grace, grace. grace. Community. 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 And renewal. Renewal. community, and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org, at iconcommunitychurch.org. or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family, Icon friends, uh, it's great for us to be together uh, again to be able to walk through uh, God's word. We're going to continue in the series that we've been in, in John. Uh, One of the things, even as we are all taking precautions uh, amidst uh, COVID-19, we still wanna make sure that we continue to grow in the way that God has been growing us. And we see it as a huge encouragement for us to have some sense of normalcy uh, in the midst of all of this uncertainty. And so we're gonna continue in John. And frankly, the text that we have today really does present us with uh, a really good question uh, that needs, needs an important answer. And that is what do we do with our unbelief. Even more so, what is the, what is the real root of our unbelief? Maybe we are people who uh, profess to be believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus. And yet we go through cycles of belief and unbelief. And what is at the root even in those times where we're struggling to believe? I don't know about you, but there are times where something may happen or something doesn't happen or we're waiting for an answer or the answer we get isn't the one that we want or something unexpected hits and our faith gets shaken. And we're not quite sure what to do with that or why that is. And instead of just running right into shame or feeling a sense of, I can't really admit this to anyone because I feel so embarrassed by it. Maybe there's some, some things in God's word that can show us maybe why that unbelief is even there. And further, if, if there are those of us who maybe we're just not, we're not there as believers. And maybe I'm, I'm looking at some things and I'm just not sure if I'm ready to really engage this or I'm ready to, to submit to these truths. Um, that there still, needs, uh, there still needs to be the question asked, why? What's at the root? What's at the root of our inability or our refusal to believe a thing? I believe our text today does answer that question. More so, this text shows us what the anatomy of our unbelief actually is. I think this is important because when I look at the text and when I think through topics like this, most of the time when people would talk about unbelief, uh, and they would say, well, I just don't know that I'm a believer because um, I'm just unconvinced. And while there are cases like that, it's interesting that whenever you see people who struggle or lack faith in the scriptures, it's not its not, due to, uh, a, it's not a function of their inability uh, to, to grasp the intellectual details. It's not really a function of them being unconvinced. What we see throughout the scriptures is more often Unbelief is a function of an unwillingness to be confronted, which then makes it almost impossible to be converted. And so when we look at this text, uh, the question or, or the question, two questions that should always be asked when we talk about following Jesus and, and, and walking uh, in his uh, love and walking in his law, two questions that we have to answer. Who is Jesus and what do we do with his claims? So I pose this to you. For you, who is Jesus and what do you do with his claims? It's a vitally important question because the way you answer the first question will necessitate how you answer the second question. So if for you, Jesus is both savior and Lord, then what you do with his claims will look different than if you don't believe that he's both savior and Lord. Now you might be asking, why would I have to even delineate between Savior and Lord here? And I think it's important because uh, you can be saved from something and still not feel uh, the compunction to have to uh, obey the person who saved you. Uh, there, those of us in, 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 in our church, you, you know that uh, I was uh, in, I remember being in a car accident when I was a kid. I was hit by a bus A lot of jokes always fly whenever I tell people I was hit by a bus. And by the way, the name of that bus was smart. So I've gotten lots of jokes about the fact that I was hit by a smart bus, which must mean any number of things. When I was hit by that bus, I'll never forget. Such a weird statement to make. When I was hit by that bus, I'll never forget. Uh, I, I, I remember hitting the ground in Detroit, Michigan, living with my mom and my siblings. And I remember hitting the ground and kind of blacking out. And then when I came to, there was someone that was there who went out of their way to continue talking to me to make sure that I didn't fall asleep. Because if I had had a concussion, they were really worried that I might not wake up. So they just kept talking to me, kept talking to me, bringing up every random topic. They brought up the one thing that every Detroiter often asks, will the Lions ever win? He, He brought up all kinds of things, things about the Pistons, things about college. He just kept talking. And I remember like, I did, I just wanted to go to sleep, but he just kept talking. And I really think that his unwillingness to stop, right? His unwillingness to, 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 to give up. He just kept talking to me until I just came to fully. I really think in many ways that saved me. Now, in some ways that man functioned as a savior for me, but what I never did, I never sought out that man to figure out, Hey, how should I be living my life from here on out? I never sought that man out to say, hey, what should be uh, the, the decision making matrix that I use in order to make life decisions? I never sought him out to say, hey, what should I be thinking about when I have to make big life decisions about marriage, about jobs, about college? I didn't do any of that. I didn't ask him, how should I comport myself in relationships? How should I, uh, what should I do? How, what should I believe about God? I didn't think any of those things. That man functioned as a, a, a savior, but not necessarily as Lord. And we need to really bear down there, uh, there a little bit longer, because for a lot of us, we may look at Jesus as a savior. I'm sorry, for a lot of us, we may look at, yeah, we will, we will look at Jesus as a functional savior. There are things that Jesus has saved me from. There are things that, that maybe I used to do that I don't do any longer, and so he's my savior. But there are times when who Jesus is and the claims that he makes confronts some other things that we think or some other ways that we feel and we aren't having any of that. See, we're okay with Jesus being our savior, but we're not okay with him truly being Lord because if he's Lord, then we actually have to submit to him. And in submission, we submit every part of ourselves. So in our text today, we really are gonna see that uh, played out. We're gonna look at two primary groups here that are perfect examples of unbelief. And it's gonna be interesting when you look at two different expressions of unbelief, but the same root of unbelief is true in both. And so when we, when we look at this text, be thinking through that, start looking as I read through this, start thinking through what examples of unbelief do I see here? And what's at the core? What's truly at the root? Because as we get to the end, I want us to maybe turn that lens on ourselves and say, what areas in my life Do I lack real belief? And it's not just, uh, it's not a quick checklist item. So I can say, if you lack belief, start believing. It's more than that. What is it deep down that almost stops me and precludes me from truly believing and then submitting? So let's get, jump into our text. We're going to read uh, John chapter 7. We've been spending time uh, in John now for the last couple of months, and we've really enjoyed it because John is such a unique gospel author. Uh, there's some, uh, it, by, by the way, one of the things that we find about John, John ended up living the longest of all of the disciples. He, he's, one of the, he's the only disciple to actually die of natural causes. He lived a really long, full life, and he was able to actually share so much about Jesus. We find out in John 20 that all of these things he shares with us in order that we would believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And so it's important as we read this passage again, this whole thing is about belief and how we struggle with unbelief. So this is very much shared with us in order that we would believe. So let's read uh, God's word together. John chapter 7 Uh, Verses one through 24. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, my time is not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time is not yet fully come. And after he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly, The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? I perform one work and you're all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather judge according to righteous judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This text shows us two expressions of unbelief. And we still see that same root of unbelief in both, but they're expressed differently. If if I were to put it simply, what you notice from Jesus's brothers and we'll dig into them in in a a few minutes, what you notice in in, in the brothers, the siblings of Jesus, frankly, um, you notice a sense of excitement about Jesus, yet still an an, an unwavering unbelief uh, about who he is and why he's there. that that can be a harder one to identify as unbelief. Now with the Jewish leaders and the crowds, it's a little bit easier to see their unbelief. There is a general aversion to Jesus because they don't want to do anything with his claims. But when you look at this, uh, this, this story, We have to put it back into its context, right? We wanna be careful not to immediately ask the question, what does this mean for us? We need to ask, what did this mean to the original hearers? And what did this mean for the audience that was actually experiencing this in the moment so that we can glean what God is saying to us? So when you think about what's happened, we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus. And we've looked at so much of his ministry when he comes onto the scene, when, he, uh, when John the Baptist has been testifying about him and Jesus's ministry begins and he starts selecting and electing his, his disciples and the disciples are starting to follow and he starts to do some of these miracles. He does the miracle, the first miracle, the wedding at Cana when he turns water into wine. And then we see this next miracle where he uh, heals a lame man who had been lame for 38 years and he heals him on the Sabbath. And you see Jesus refer to that. And you see the crowds are following him and the crowds are amazed and they're marveled because they're seeing things done that had just never been done. And as they're following him, plenty of things start to happen. Jesus starts to make certain claims that people start having real issues with. He starts making claims about actually being, uh, uh, being God. Some of the claims he makes only God could ever make. His, some of the authority that he speaks with, his ability to call out sin, his ability to actually heal, his ability to refer to God as his own father, which no one would actually do. And so he's doing things now that people are st- some people are starting to get really frustrated with. In many ways, because when Jesus starts to show the power of his father, it starts to take the shine away from the other religious leaders. They're starting to get frustrated that some of the glory that they were able to keep for themselves is now going to Jesus. And, and then by virtue of that to God, the father. And so when you see uh, Jesus at this point in time, so much has occurred People are already worried uh, for his life. He's already, he already recognizes that people are trying to kill him. If you recall, he had just uh, a, a few chapters before spent time uh, feeding the 5,000, which we determined was likely 15 to 20,000 when you count um, uh, wives and children. And he had just done this incredible uh, miracle. And folks see him and they go, wow, he's doing these incredible miracles. He must be the Messiah that we're waiting for. But the Messiah that they wanted was not necessarily the Messiah that presented. The Messiah that they wanted was this military political leader, this leader that would restore Israel uh, back to its rightful place. So they, was, they were expecting uh, Jesus to come with military might and political savvy and this ability to make Israel great again, mega, if you will. And so in that, uh, what they truly wanted to see, they wanted to see this, this incredible leader, the leader they wanted, but not the leader that truly presented. And this is something we have to remember. It's important that we truly believe in the God that is, not the God we want him to be. We need to believe in the Messiah that is, not the Messiah that we want him to be. So because of that, when when your idea of God doesn't match with who God truly is, you have a couple of choices. You can either submit to that and go, I need to redefine what I thought about God, or I try to force him into this box that I created. And so every time he doesn't fit, I get angry. Every time he doesn't fit, I get bitter. Every time he doesn't fit, I stop believing. This is where the people were. So Jesus now, at this point in time, he knows that there there are enemies. He knows that there are people that are out to get him. He knows that people are very frustrated about the attention that he's getting. All the ways that he's claiming to be the Messiah and they're angry because he doesn't look like the Messiah they wanted. And so now they're planning to kill him. And so when you, when you, when you let that be the backdrop here, because these are real people. And so you think about what the people must be looking for. They still want to see Jesus. He's doing these amazing things. They still are curious about how he's able to do these things. And some of them legitimately want healing. Some of them legitimately want teaching. Some of them legitimately want to just learn more. And so after all of this Jesus is uh, taking a different route because he doesn't want to go through certain areas where he knows that people are uh, wanting to kill him, and they're on their way to this Jewish festival. Uh, some uh, some translations will call it the Festival of Tents, uh, the Festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Shelters. This, uh, if if you remember. There were three major Jewish feasts that would happen for every male, uh, male member of the Jewish faith in that culture. You wanted to go to Jerusalem for these three feasts. You wanted to do it annually if you could. If you had the money, you had the wherewithal, you wanted to do that. The first was Passover. That would normally happen in the spring, roughly around this time. And so you would want to go to Passover to celebrate and to remember most of these, all these festivals were done so that the people would not forget all the ways that God delivered them and also remember the promise that he would come and deliver them once and for all. And so there was this constant rhythm of we want to remember. Now, as an aside, why does God call us to remember? Because in our own brokenness and in our own faithlessness, we are prone to forget. We need reminders we need to be reminded often that God is the God that shelters and protects. Now, this particular uh, time, Passover happens. And after Passover, they would celebrate Pentecost, 50 days after Passover for 50 days. Some uh, call it the Feast of Weeks, these seven-week celebrations. Listen, these folks knew how to party. They were having a great time. They would sing, they would dance, they would eat, they would drink, and they would celebrate and remember what their God had done for them and still looking forward to the Messiah that would come and truly set things right once and for all. So after Pentecost, you would move on to the Feast of Shelters, the Feast of Tents, the Festival of Tabernacles, this was set to remember not only the fact that uh, God, uh, the the angel of death passed over those Jews who put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost to show their faith that God would protect them and pass over their home. That was incredible. And all of the celebration remembering that. But then if you recall, after the children of Israel exited and went through that exodus and they were out of Egypt, there there was a time where God had them in tents in little, little tabernacles, little shelters, waiting for God to be able to take care of them. And so what would happen is those in the Jewish faith would always remember that. They would remember, remember the time that we were spending in those tents that our forefathers and our, our, all of our ancestors were spending time waiting for God to deliver them, waiting for God to provide what they needed, waiting for God to keep his promises. And so when you look at this, this feast, this festival, most scholars will say this was the most festive of all the feasts. This was the time when people would have the most fun. The way some of the younger generations say this was the time to turn up. This is when everybody would have a good time. They would enjoy. But think about it. Every year you you get a chance to like uh, uh, commiserate with some of the people that you had spent time with years before. You haven't seen a certain uncle you haven't seen a grandparent you haven't seen an old friend maybe you went to a certain school together with someone and this was the time and y'all this was like this was like it was like burning man without the hedonism and like with god it was like this was a time where people would like set up shop it was like camping out in the middle of the desert and they're they got tents everywhere and they're enjoying and they're singing songs of worship and they're eating and they're drinking and they're being merry and it's this incredible time it also coincided with uh, the harvest. So they were also celebrating the ways that God had brought bountiful harvests for them. And that so that they could spend the rest of the year uh, having what they needed to survive. So this was a time of joy. It was also a time of expectancy because they were reminded, yes, we remember the God that sheltered us. We remember the God that protected us. We remember the God that delivered us, but we also are looking forward to the God that's gonna deliver us once and for all. We're looking forward to the Messiah that's going to come and deliver us once and for all. And so this was this incredible time, these three feasts and folks were excited and everybody would show up. Several uh, commentators will talk about some of the different ceremonies that they would have. They, they would have ceremonies where they would uh, celebrate lighting candles to commemorate God's presence with Israel. Then there was in the New Testament, you saw several people at these festivals pouring water out as a function of remembering the ways that God's spirit had been poured out on his people or his spirit had hovered over his people and protected his people. And so when you see this this picture, this is an incredible time. And the brothers, now you look at this and you see Jesus, by the way, you might be shocked. Jesus had siblings. Uh, the scriptures show us that uh, Jesus wasn't just an only child. Yes, there are different faith groups that have worked really hard and done a lot of gymnastics to almost push this idea that, uh, that Jesus uh, was just kind of an only child of Mary. But the scriptures seem to show that Jesus indeed did have siblings. The word there for brothers is a, a, a Greek word that actually just simply means siblings. It can mean brothers and sisters. Uh, and there are a few two passages of scripture that we see that reminds us that Jesus did have siblings. The first is in Mark 6. If you remember uh, in, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus is in his hometown and he's making these in, their, in other people's minds, outlandish claims. And they are so frustrated by some of the things Jesus is saying that they do what we're prone to do. And we're going to see it done again later. A lot of times when people say things that you don't like or they make claims that you don't like, instead of dealing with the veracity of the claims, you start just poking, uh, poking at the person's character or you start p- poking at the person's past or you start poking at the person's status. You do what's called an ad hominem argument. So Jesus is making these bold claims and they go, wait a minute, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So, so we know that Jesus definitely had at least four brothers and a certain number of sisters. Some people think two, we don't know for sure, but we know that he had brothers and sisters. What's interesting is two of the brothers that are named here end up being authors of two other biblical books, the book of James and the book of Jude, also transliterated as Judas. So, so you know that, they had, uh, that he had siblings, and we know that these siblings were there. Now, now, there's another passage here, Matthew 12. If you remember, Jesus, again, is talking while he was still talking to the multitudes. One said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So. Jesus had siblings and he had siblings that, and if you stop and think for a minute, what must it have been like to be a sibling of Jesus? Y'all, this isn't just uh, a nice, uh, 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 this fanciful fairy tale where it's just a bunch of fictional characters. There's a lot of history, extra biblical history about the existence of several of these characters. These are people, real people like you, like me, having real feelings, experiencing the human experience. They're having real occasions to deal with their own flesh and to deal with their own nature and to deal with their own doubts and to deal with the same things that you and I deal with. So, so just put yourself in the shoes of one of the siblings of Jesus. Let's just go back in time and try. Imagine being the child of Mary, right? Maybe child number four, number five, number six, and, you, and you're, you're raised in this family where your older brother Jesus has been doted on by your mother and talked about by your mother and all of the great things about him you've heard from mom. Hey guys, I, I'm just going to remind you again, it's, it's his birthday and you guys know what happened, right? I, I'm going to tell you the story again. The angel came and this and that and this and that and, and you're hearing this and then you're hearing, here are all the ways that he will fulfill these prophecies. Here are all the ways that the promises of God are, are, are culminated in him, are manifested in him. So as a, young, as a young sibling, you're hearing that, you're hearing that, you're hearing that. Now, compare that or even juxtapose that with what, the, what you're hearing when you leave the house. When you leave the house, you aren't hearing, whoa, your brother, your older brother's the Messiah, whoa, your brother is the king of the Jews. Your brother is the one that's going to deliver us. They're not hearing that at all. If you were a child of Mary and Joseph and and not Jesus, you were always hearing all of the rumors. You were hearing all of the shame. People were probably saying, Hey, isn't your mom Mary? Yeah, we, we remember Mary. We remember that time when she was engaged to your dad and she went away for a while and she came back pregnant talking about it was the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we remember that. Y'all got some, some Jerry Springer stuff going on in your family. We don't invite you over for dinner. That's, that's, you have to just be real. It's very possible that they're dealing, these siblings have dealt with the shame. So here's what that means. These siblings have never had the type of, uh, uh, the, the type of reputation that you would want living not only in ancient Middle Eastern world, but even today. We want to be able to feel like that we, have, uh, that we have reasons to be proud of the people from whom we come. We want to believe that we're a part of families that are worthy of, uh, of praise, for, uh, worthy of things that we can say, man, I'm so thankful to come from this group of people. It's why when there's, for th- I've done a whole bunch of family tree study, whenever we come across something that's a little shady, we either just skip over it or we have a lot of family myths to cover it up because we just don't want to accept that there might be some real brokenness here. And when everybody knows some of that business, it gets even worse. So just imagine these siblings going through their life dealing with this. Now they remember maybe a time when Jesus was 12 teaching in the temple and getting some attention for that. But at the same time, they're still hearing, yeah, but you know that his dad is not your dad, right? You know that your mom was probably doing things she shouldn't have done. This is the type of shame and that type of culture that they were raised in. So what do you think's happening for them? Well, let's look, look at this text again. The festival of shelters was near in verse three. So his brother said to him, leave here, And go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you're doing. Listen to verse four. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse five, very curious. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about if anybody were to come to me and say, hey, the stuff that you're doing, the stuff that you're saying, you really need to go and be in a more public space because the, the people need to hear this or what have you. I wouldn't at first just immediately assume, oh, you must be unfaithful, right? Or, or you must, you know, you must have some type of a uh, some some issue with me. I wouldn't immediately say that. But John, right after they express excitement for Jesus to be on display, says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So here's one big point, one big takeaway. Excitement for Jesus does not necessarily equate to belief in Jesus. And excitement for Jesus doesn't even equate to a love for Jesus. It's very possible that these brothers and sisters, these siblings, genuinely wanted Jesus on display because of their close proximity to Jesus. You know, sometimes there are people who uh, you see this all the time when if you go to uh, a a, an entertainment event and maybe there's a really famous artist or a famous actor or a famous athlete. And immediately you're just like, hey, can I take a selfie? Right. I just want to take a selfie. Well, why do I want to take a selfie? Because on some level, I just want people to see me next to you because you're the one that has the glory. But maybe I get a little bit of glory just by being close enough to yours. So my real goal, I'm not saying this wrong to go get the autographs or any of that. However, my real goal in doing this has really nothing to do with you. I may not ever see you again. I may not ever talk to you. You're probably not gonna wanna talk to me again. So this is my one time to snap a photo with this incredibly famous person. Folks call it clout chasing. I want to be able to have some type of close proximity to someone who gets the glory so that by virtue of my closeness to them, I can share in some of that. You see, the root of their excitement is not in a desire to glorify Jesus and to glorify God. The root of their excitement is to glorify self. You See, that often is the root of real unbelief, a desire for self exaltation. And so in their case, we can be I'm very excited for you to get. Up. You know why, Jesus, because guess what? If you get up there, you get up on center stage and start doing all of your miracles, start doing all of your tricks. They're going to have to stop saying the stuff they've been saying about us. They're going to have to start bringing you incredible real glory, which means we get to stand right next to you. <clears throat> we get to stand next to you and share in this incredible time of real glory. And so that's the reason why, it, to me, it makes sense why John did say, for not even his brothers believed in him." You see, they believed in what he could do. They believed in what he could bring, but they didn't believe in why he was there. And they didn't believe in the one who sent him. See, that's the thing. It's not enough. This is one of the reasons why we, we have to be really careful when we talk about faith and we say, well, you know, I, I believe, uh, I believe in a higher power. I believe in a God, but I don't know about Jesus. Well, this is much more specific. You see, these folks were religious and they believed in God. They believed in this idea of uh, Jehovah. They believed in this idea of Yahweh. They believed in this idea that there was a holy God that was truly in control. They believed that. But did they truly believe in Jesus? See, it's not enough necessarily to just say, I believe in God, if I don't truly believe in the one that the Father has sent. And so they don't truly believe it. And you see that on display here. And so now all of a sudden they're going, hey, Jesus, get on center stage, do these incredible things because we can share in some of that glory. And then Jesus says to them, well, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. This feels kind of like a shade. This kind of feels like he's almost saying, I mean, it's easy for you guys to say to just for me to just go up there. See, but it's not my time yet. It's not my, it, it, it isn't the moment yet for me to do it that way. And then he says, you guys can go uh, anytime you want. And then he says, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that it's works are evil. So let's talk about this. When he says that you, that the world won't hate you, it'll hate me. Why would the world hate him? A great way to think about walking this Christian walk, a great way to think about walking uh, in a way that says that I love and I follow Jesus as savior and Lord is to think about this life the way that one would look at an escalator. When I was a kid uh, and you got a chance to go to a mall and maybe you go hang out, um, you'd always see one person, I won't say if I was that person, but you you would see one person that would always try to go up the escalator that's meant to go down, right? You'd always see one and it's a lot of work. It's really hard. It's way harder, I heard, to, to go up one uh, than it is, uh, than you would imagine, right? Because the escalator going down, that's easy. No one's ever going to look at you funny for that. But trying to go up the escalator that's going down, really, really difficult. And what was really, when, when you think about the Christian walk, so often it, look, it will look like, a person is trying to go up the down escalator when they're living in a way that says, my mindset is one that is rooted in who Jesus is, is rooted in me believing his claims versus believing the mindset of what the Bible calls the world. And, and so ultimately, when you think about what Jesus is saying is, you guys are all, you guys are all going down the down escalator. Nobody's going to have any questions with you. Nobody's going to, you know, if you, you, you the mindset that you have to have to follow me. You guys don't have the heart posture that you have to have to follow me. You guys don't have. So guess what? No one's going to be offended by you. Listen, there, there, there's, no, there's no shortage of examples of people who have chosen to follow Jesus. And because of that, decisions are made in their personal life. Decisions are made in their public life that start to, to really cause real frustration for other people, even without saying anything. They may not even say, hey, I just want to let you know that there's some things I'm doing differently now. Hey, I just want to let you know that I'm not actually comfortable with X, Y, and Z. Or hey, I just want to let you know that there's some strong feelings I have about this now. They just live it out. And it's interesting that people will automatically start to feel uh, indicted even without you saying anything. For example, if you believe strongly because of what the gospel teaches that we should care deeply about justice, that we should care deeply about those who are what the Bible calls the least of these, if you believe deeply that even in the midst of coronavirus that you, you start to go, you know, yes, I care about what's happening to me and I care about what's happening to my family, but I know that there's a disproportionate impact that something like this will have on people who are poor, on people who don't have access to health care, on people who don't have access to, to internet or to be able to have mass media to know what's even happening. If I know that, then my heart is driven by that. You realize that for people who aren't thinking like that, immediately they'll go, well, wh- why should I be thinking about that? They'll get really defensive. Well, why? I mean, why are you even worried about that? We can't do anything about that. Why even go there? That just seems like a waste of time. Some of that even can come from a fact of, hey, I, it's a, that's a harder road and it's walking up the escalator backwards. And for other people, they're going, I, I don't like that. You're making me feel bad. Why? Because you're making me have to think in such a way that I actually just don't want to think. And then you're telling me that thinking that way is a function of following Jesus. I thought I followed Jesus already. So Jesus is looking at these Brothers, going, it's easy for you to say to tell me to go up there and, and, and do my thing because you guys don't have to worry about being hated because you're just going along with the crowd anyhow. And he said, uh, after that, he, he said these things and he stayed in Galilee. And, they, and he told them, he said, you guys go up to the festival. I'm not going. Now, we realize really what he was saying was I'm not going yet. And so they, they go. And that's his way of saying, I'm not going in the way that you want me to go. I'm not going in the manner in which you think I should go. Y'all, that's often what we do with Jesus. Again, we say we believe in Jesus, but we've already written his script for him. We've already determined how he should come, what he should say, what he should do. And we've determined what he ought not say. And my grandmother would say what he bet not say, what he bet not do, how he bet not come. And so now you're looking at uh, Jesus having to confront his brothers and sisters, his siblings, and to tell them, hey, You guys are not following. You guys actually, you don't have to deal with this. In many ways, he's saying, you guys really want to share in my exaltation, but none of you want to share in my humiliation. And we know that's the case because when you look, have you ever wondered, we were talking about this a couple days ago. You ever wonder why when Jesus is on the cross later and he's uh, uh, getting ready to die and he looks down, you recall, he looks down and he sees his mother and he sees John, the author of this. And he looks at his mother and he says, this is now your mother. And he looks at Mary and says, this is now your son. Basically entrusting the care of his mother to John. Have you ever wondered why he didn't entrust that care to his brothers? Have you ever wondered why his siblings weren't the ones to, to be responsible for their mother? Likely because James and Jude at this time, they weren't following Jesus. They didn't believe they probably were afraid for their life people probably assume that they must be true followers because they were blood relatives of Jesus. But see, this also teaches another lesson. Close proximity to Jesus doesn't mean real faith in Jesus either. Close proximity to Jesus doesn't mean a real love for Jesus. Blood relation even to Jesus in their case doesn't really mean real faith or trust in Jesus. Jesus ends up entrusting his mother into the hands of his, of the, the disciple. The scripture says the disciple Jesus loved one that if you remember, John was likely one of the disciples of John the Baptist, who then moved over to Jesus and followed Jesus all throughout and wrote about these things. He may have been one of the most faithful disciples. And yet you're looking at the very family of Jesus who completely turns. Now we've, we see eventually they become believers and we'll hit that toward the end. But, but ultimately you see this story of brothers of siblings who don't necessarily follow. And so then Jesus uh, goes to, Jesus ends up going to uh, this uh, festival later. Scripture says when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. I'd love to be able to claim this as a reason why I can show up late to things, but that just makes everybody mad. So I won't do that. Uh, but, but look, it is true. Jesus showed up late. So do with that what you want. Uh, when the festival was already half over, Jesus went into the temple and he began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and they said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? And Jesus answered them, my teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do as well, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And there's no unrighteousness in him. Listen to this for a minute. Jesus is now looking. He's talking to these, to these uh, religious followers, these Jewish followers in this Jewish crowd. <clears throat> and they're there for this festival. They're there because it's exciting time and all these things. They've heard about Jesus and he shows up. He doesn't do any miracles, by the way. I find really interesting. He shows up and he starts teaching and they're amazed, much like what happened when he was 12 in the temple and they were amazed. Now, one of the things we know is when you were teaching at any point in time, it was looked at as pride and hubris for you to teach something that just came from you. If you were a teacher, specifically a rabbi, you would not just teach based on what you think, you, because, because you could never be the highest authority, right? You would teach based on what traditionally had been taught by trustworthy rabbis and teachers throughout the centuries. So you would easily go, well, Rabbi Hillel said that X, Y, and Z is this, so we're going to expand on that, right? So it would never look like you would be the one from whom the teaching is coming. Why? Because you never wanted to look like you were being rooted in pride. And so when Jesus starts teaching, See, they're going, wait a minute, he, he hasn't studied under Gamaliel. He hasn't studied under some of the most famous uh, rabbis that we know. He hasn't, uh, we've never seen him in Hebrew school. We've never seen him uh, study at the temple. How in the world is he doing this? So now they're almost wanting to check his credentials. And when they look at him and they see this and they see the power that he preaches with, and they look at this and, they, and, and they're saying that something's gotta be wrong, right? Because again, when people start making claims, that they really can't refute, then the only thing they can do is start to try to indict your character and indict who you are and indict, maybe even question your right to even be there. So Jesus uh, talks to them and, and, and he says, wait a minute now, I, the one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm not here to just seek my glory. What I'm telling you, what I'm sharing with you comes from the very God that you claim to follow. And, and the very thing that I'm saying to you shouldn't even be that surprising to you. And then he starts to appeal to their alleged belief in the law. Wait a minute. You guys claim to believe in the law. He says in 19, didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you kept the law. Why are you trying to kill me? And then they did again. What we say is often common. They, didn't, they couldn't do anything about the claim that he made. They couldn't necessarily really refute it. So immediately they do what we often do. I don't like what you're saying, so I'll just call you a name. You're a demon. You have to have a demon. No one's trying to kill you. Not only do they name call, but they gaslight him. There's been already evidence. We've seen it early in the earlier chapters that folks have already set out plans to kill Jesus. Jesus knows that there are people in that crowd that want to kill him. But yet when they hear and they are confronted by something that is true about their hearts, you have a choice. I can either submit to that and repent or I begin to deflect and I begin to find a way to get away from, I don't want to be at the end of that. I don't want to be the target of that confrontation. So instead I'm going to go, nope, the problem is you. It's almost like when we, listen, we all do this. Somebody tells you, hey, I think you did something uh, that really hurt me. The easiest way to gaslight is, well, are you sure that you really were hurt by that? Or are you sure you should have been hurt by that? Or are you sure I really did that versus starting with real humility here at this church? We've defined humility as the ability to say I wouldn't put it past me. So if 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 that confrontation hits, my first reaction should be, let me stop. I realize that the brokenness of my heart means that there's no limit to what I'm capable of doing. So let me just stop and go, man, this might be true of me. But that's not where they were. So when they get confronted, much in the ways that the brothers got confronted, they get confronted and they just get angry and they start pointing fingers and they start saying, nope. And then they levy this incredible spiritually damning accusation and saying, you have a demon. Whatever you're doing right now, all this truth that you're saying, you're doing it by the power of a demon. And that's when he uh, responds. And uh, he says, I perform one work and you're all amazed. And remember, that's the work that Jesus had done, healing the man on the Sabbath, uh, the man who had been uh, crippled for 38 years. And he says, I healed this man. I, I, I do this, this amazing work. And you're all amazed. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me? Because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath. Now we don't have to get caught in, in the minutia of a lot of Jewish law here. But one of the things Jesus is pointing out is their hypocrisy. Jesus is pointing out clearly your real problem with me is not that I did something on the Sabbath. You know how I know that because you guys have no problem circumcising a child on the Sabbath. Now what he's talking about really quickly is it was a normal custom for a child eight days after they were born to be circumcised. It was a part of the covenant family of God. And it was a huge symbolic picture of what God had promised to do for the Jewish people. And so here was the question. There were, there were people would go, wait a minute. What if a baby is born eight days away from the Sabbath? What do we do? Do we, do we circumcise them early? Do we circumcise them the day after? And Upon the authority of several rabbis who would come before these folks, they had several things. There's, a, there's something called the Mishnah, which is just a book of rabbinical commentary. And in the Mishnah, you see specific allowances made for boys to still be circumcised on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is basically saying, you guys know that there are exceptions, right? And by the way, just keep, put, put it this way. any time where the law of God is in conflict somehow with the heart of God, always err on the heart of God first. It's very diff. You, you will create a form of, of bondage and legalism when you hold to the law of God, completely devoid of the heart of God. And so Jesus is showing them, listen, if you guys knew God's heart, you would have no problem with the fact that I healed a man on the Sabbath because we know we serve a God that wants to come and heal and make these bodies new and, and, and give little pictures of the new life that's coming. So if you truly understood the heart of God, you wouldn't even have a problem with this. Don't tell me that you have a problem with my uh, not keeping the law. Jesus is showing you don't really have a problem with me not keeping the law. You have a real problem just with me. You have a problem with the ways that I'm confronting you about your sin. So let's just keep it where it belongs. Don't make it seem like that. Well, you know, and and listen, we do this. We have our own religious ideas. We have our own ways that we have shaped God. If you shape God and reshape God into these are the things that you should do. This is the way that you should pray. This is the things, these are the things that you should say. This is how you should look. This is how you should dress. This is how you should sing. If you don't do these things, you're not truly following God perfectly. Once that happens, And somebody begins to say, hey, there's some things here that's not really looking like Jesus. Well, I don't really want to hear what you have to say, because I saw that you wore pants the other day for certain churches that believe that women shouldn't wear pants. I don't want to hear what you have to say, because you were singing a song that had a certain type of beat in it. And I don't really know if that's holy. You see, this is where we start to, like, try to hold people hostage by these kind of uh, very artificial ways in which we construct holiness And then we try to bound God by these artificial lines of holiness and then we get to call people out. That's the, that's the litmus test by which we start to judge other people. See, this is how they were judging Jesus and he calls them out. And then he finally says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me? Because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath stop judging according to outward appearances rather judge, according to righteous judgment. Now in closing, I just want to point out four quick things because we need to really understand what does it mean to judge with righteous judgment? In other words, what does it mean for me to have the heart and mind of God in order to really make sense of things? What does it mean for me to have the heart and mind of God so that I can battle this root of unbelief? Here's what we see. Keep in mind of what we just saw. Notice that Jesus, when he goes to the festival, he goes there in private. He doesn't go publicly. He goes there privately. He goes there in a way to say, I don't want to go in order to just make people think I'm here to just put on a show, even though my brothers and my siblings wanted me to do that. That's not what I come here to do. And then he comes when he, gets, when he finally goes public. He doesn't go public with miracles. He doesn't get, go public with showing. He doesn't go public with performing. He goes public with teaching, and I think it makes sense. I mean, of course it makes sense. It's God, so I, I can't judge that it makes sense. But I think we can start to make sense of, of why, right? Because ultimately this festival, while it was definitely a celebratory occasion and it was a time for people to to enjoy and engage and all these things, the, the, the ultimate goal was to incite their greatest affections for who God is, what God has done, and what God promises to do. And so when Jesus gets up to teach, he's teaching in many ways, Much almost every time you see Jesus teaching, he's teaching to be able to say, either A, this is a fulfillment of what God has come to do, or B, here are the ways in which you are not being where God has called you. Either way, this is something that will bring great glory to God. So he comes teaching. He doesn't come performing. Now, we got to be really careful because in many ways, uh, when you see some of the things that Jesus has said, he's basically pointing out this, be very careful about only wanting God in order to exalt yourself. Be really careful about only wanting to follow Jesus so that you can exalt yourself. You see, when when Jesus uh, says to his brothers, um, I'm gonna be the one rejected by the world, not you. Basically, he's pointing out the fact, you guys, again, you just wanna share in all the ways I might be exalted. In no way do you wanna share in the ways I'm gonna be humiliated because you're in this for you. If you're a believer, why are you in this? If you follow Jesus, why? Do you primarily follow him because of the things that he promises to give you? Or do you follow him because he is truly the expression of God himself? He truly is God in the flesh. He is worthy of praise and honor. He has truly come to rescue us from our own sin, rescue us from sin, death, hell, and the grave. And in the ways that he has shown himself worthy, you're like, I can't do anything else but glorify him with my life. See the question really is a big one again because if I don't think that way, then I may be more of an unbeliever than I think. If I struggle and listen, we're going to walk through those struggles, and there's going to be a up and down waves and crest. But 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 at the end of the day, you have to ask, we have to ask ourselves: When I struggle with my faith, is it because my faith was rooted in only the things God would do for me? You know when you know when our faith will get shaken if that's true when we have major emergency pandemic situations, when we have things that start happening out of our control, when we have things that start to threaten our very livelihoods, when we have things that might threaten our very life, we start to engage in this faithlessness now, why? Because maybe I'm functioning like one of the siblings It's like, Jesus, I'm just here for the miracles. I'm here for the exaltation. I'm not here for the humiliation. I'm not here for if things go bad. And that's hard because when you look at the New Testament, the majority of the people that followed Jesus, life got hard going up the escalator. For the majority of them, it didn't get easier. Now, we're not saying go and look for ways to make life hard. What we're saying is don't be surprised if or when things get hard. And ultimately, the goal isn't always to just say, uh, Lord, I, I, just, I just want you to, to deliver me from this and deliver me from this and deliver me from that. Yes, we want deliverance, but more so than that, Lord, give me the unwavering faith and belief in you so that I can endure even hard things for your glory. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is actually calling them out for. He's ultimately showing that belief in Jesus means that you care more about God's glory and his exaltation than you do yourself. Now, one of the reasons why I think that you, when you look at the difference, when I, the reason why I see both of these examples, uh, both the siblings and the crowd as forms of uh, unbelief, the same root of unbelief is because they both were rooted in a sense of wanting glory for self. The You have excitement of the brothers and you have the aversion of the crowd. The excitement of the brothers very easily seen. Again, we want glory that you're gonna get. We wanna be close to that. As long as we get that glory, we'll act like we believe you. The moment we're not gonna get glory, we're not really rocking with you at all, right? So, so again, that's that excitement that's rooted in unbelief. Don't think that just because you're excited about Jesus so that I'm excited about Jesus that I must be loving and following him. I might just love and be excited about all the things he's gonna bring me. And then uh, you've got the crowd and the religious leaders their unbelief is manifested by their aversion to Jesus, right? They have this aversion to him. They are like, I just reject some of these things because the things you're saying, instead of it bringing me glory, like the brothers wanted, you're robbing, you're stealing glory away from us. You're saying things y'all. Sometimes there are things, there are ways that we think, ways that we feel, ways that we live, that if we have to submit to the Lordship of Jesus, we've got to give up some of that glory. We've got to give up some of the things that we've wanted for ourselves. We've got to give up some of the things that we've taken real pride in. And at the end of the day, this this does get rooted in a real pride issue. So here's, here's, here's the big takeaway. Unbelief is not rooted often. It's not often rooted in being unconvinced. Unbelief is more often rooted in an unwillingness to be confronted and a heart that can not be confronted is a heart that won't be converted. We have to be in a place where we're like, Jesus, I love you. And what that means is any area in my life where I need you to confront me, I, I please make me open to. Please, please soften my heart so that I can be open to being confronted because it's only when, think about this, it's only when you're confronted with all the ways that your heart doesn't function In the ways that the God who made it function, uh, it it doesn't function in the ways that God designed it to function. See, this is where we have to come to real grips and go, hey, no matter what my mama told me, I'm cute, I'm wonderful, I'm great or whatever. That's great. And she loves me. That's wonderful. But at the same time, there's things that don't work right here. There's things that don't function. I don't I don't see things the way that I should. Maybe I, I don't I don't love the way that I should. I don't live the way that I should. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't just come saving, he comes as Lord. He comes saying, hey, I love, we say this all the time, I love you enough to meet you where you are, but I love you too much to leave you there. And so what that means is walking with Jesus is not just going to be Jesus co-signing everything that I do and say, well, he knows my heart. No, no is Jesus lovingly and sometimes very forcefully pressing in and confronting and saying, hey, this area here, that ain't it. This area here, this doesn't look like who God is. This area here, this doesn't look like me. And as long as I'm with you, which he promises to be with us until the end, as long as he's with us, he promises to chisel and chip away and tear away anything that doesn't look like him. So when you struggle with unbelief, where's your heart? Do you maybe mask it in just, I'm just not convinced? Or is it truly a case of, I'm just not unwilling. I'm just unwilling to be confronted. I'm unwilling to really have to face the fact that there are things about me that legitimately need change. And there are things that I've been trusting in, things that I've held on, a kingdom that I've built up for myself and I've been sitting on the throne. I've long felt like that I am the captain of my own ship. I've long felt like that I am the king sitting on my own throne. I've long felt like that I get to determine for myself what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. And this idea of Jesus is starting to encroach upon my kingdom. What do we do when we're confronted? even if we're believers, there's still a part of that, our old kingdom that has to keep being chosen away. What do we do when we are confronted? Excitement versus aversion. It's all unbelief. The the, the most encouraging thing in all of this, because you could hear this and go, man, well, man, I mean, if I'm honest, yeah, I could see all kinds of areas of unbelief. And what am I going to do? Just walk with my head down and walk in shame. I just feel completely beaten down. But God, does something amazing here, because here's the truth of the matter. Jesus came for the folks who realize, for the folks who are open to being confronted. He came for the folks who acknowledge their brokenness. He comes for the folks who who realize I'm really broken and desperately in need of, of saving. That's why we keep going back to belief because belief matters. What you believe matters. It's not a flippant haphazard thing what you believe determines so much. So I'll close with Romans 10 verse 11, where the apostle Paul reminds us of something so true about what God promises to do, how God loves us and what faith in Jesus truly means. Romans 10, 11 says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do we truly believe that the Lord Jesus has truly come to rescue us from all these ways that our patterns of unbelief enslave us? Do we truly believe that Jesus came, lived this sinless, perfect life, serving as a perfect sacrifice in our place, And not only died, because dying, there's a lot of great people that have died. There's a lot of well-meaning people that have died. There are a lot of people who said good things who died. But the moment that their ability to to, to save you was proven to be completely powerless is the moment they died. Why? Because they stayed dead. The fact that Jesus resurrected says, I rose with all power over death, hell, the grave, which means I've risen with all power, even over your shame. So that means that the shame that you feel every single day that we can repent and walk in and say, Lord, I I, I realize that's a place of faithlessness for me. Every place of sin in my life is a place of faithlessness for me. But I realize that you're faithful and just to forgive over and over again. You know why? Because Jesus loves faithless people. Jesus pursues the faithless people. We are all we have all been faithless at different times and Jesus says, I come for those. You know why? Because your faith on your own will never save you. But when I come in and I change your heart and your heart is softened to be confronted, then it's a heart that can be converted. And so our prayer is often that God, will you completely continue to keep ransacking our heart lovingly, but forcefully and showing us areas in our in our lives, showing us areas in our hearts where we desperately need true conversion. That is the only antidote to unbelief. This idea that that I'm truly open to remain confronted until Jesus returned. We should always be open to being confronted by who he is and then comforted by the power that he gives us to battle sin, to love him well, and to love each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are a God that does not turn your back on us. You don't turn uh, your back on the faithless. God, as I'm reminded, I look at the fact that even though your own siblings turned away from you, your own siblings did not believe in you, your own siblings uh, really were just trying to kind of chase after your own glory for themselves. Father, they clearly had been pursued by you and their hearts clearly had been converted. And now we have the book of James and now we have the book of Jude. You can see the real changing, converting power. And so God, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice. I pray for myself, God, every area in our hearts that don't look like you, that don't love like you, that don't live like you. Confront us. Give us a real holy discontent and confront us to the point where we are ever converted. And it is in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.